everybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, whether it's encouraging or whether it's not, it's a fact. Uh, you're about five and a half weeks away from finals? Is what I... Hey, I'm six and a half weeks away from finals. I'm still taking school too, so don't worry. I'm not, uh, I'm not just chilling at this point. <clears throat> um, so tonight we're continuing in a series uh, entitled The Kingdom of God, and it might feel like forever since we've actually been in this series, since it's been of like three weeks. Uh, you know, last week was spring break, and then we had John Robinson, who's a tough act to follow two weeks ago, uh, come in and speak, a missionary from Wales. If you weren't here for that talk, I highly recommend you going to the website and listening to that, because he did a great job. It was an amazing, amazing talk. Um, but but we, the week before that, Eric actually also did a really good talk, and he was last time we talked in this series, and we've been talking about the kingdom of God throughout this whole semester, and so just as a real quick way of review to kind of catch up on some of what we talked about, uh, we've been talking about what are some of the benefits and some of the markers of what it would look like to live in the kingdom of God, and as we discussed this semester, you know, the kingdom of God is not just heaven, although it includes that, uh, but really the kingdom of God is wherever God is ruling and reigning now on, on this earth right now. And um, we actually have the ability to step into to that kingdom. And the, the good thing is no matter what you've got going for you or what you don't have going for you, uh, you actually have the ability to experience the benefits of stepping into the kingdom of God under his rule and reign and enjoying life in his kingdom now, not when you die and potentially go to heaven. Um, however, as Jesus pointed out in the middle of his uh, famous Sermon on the Mount, which is, you know, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, if you ever want to read that in the Bible. Um, he talks about two big uh, hurdles, I guess you could call them, of what would keep us from potentially really living out and really enjoying fully what the kingdom of God has to offer. And Eric talked about one of those hurdles a couple weeks ago. And the first big one, uh, which you see up here, is, is living for the approval of others. That's kind of the first big hurdle, living for the approval of others. And what Eric talked about, he said, you know, it's so tempting to let our motivation for not doing the bad things that we do or for doing the good things that we do to be, we want others to, to approve of us. You know, we think, man, if everyone will like me, life will just come together. Um, but unfortunately, as he talked about what that really does, that causes us to just to really get focused on image management rather than character growth. And so we just don't actually really grow. You know, we just put up an image of what we want people to think of us. Um, but if we realize and live out of the reality of what Eric really talked about, which is, you know, it's more important what God knows and what actually uh, people think, man, we can, we can really be free from, from the bondage of needing to uh, have the approval of others in our lives. So that's the first hurdle, you know, living for the approval of others. But if we can get beyond treasuring and get beyond trusting in the approval of others, we still have to come to the second hurdle, which is what tonight's talk is about. And that is uh, to get over the second hurdle of really experiencing, being able to experience the kingdom of God to its fullest, is getting over the hurdle of treasuring and trusting in wealth. Treasuring and trusting wealth. Or as I'm going to call it tonight mostly is getting over the hurdle of the deception of wealth. The deception of wealth. Jesus put it this way on, in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, 
it can't really be stated much clearer than that, right? I mean, he's, he's pretty, pretty black and white about it. Um, and, and I understand, like, if someone is not wanting to follow God or they don't believe in God, then naturally they're going to serve money. That makes sense, right? But the odd thing is, with how clear that is, so often you see and so often I see uh, people that really do want to walk with God, including myself, but easily fall into the deception of wealth. You know, well, why is that? You know, what is it that causes us to so easily fall into that, that deception? Well, I think part of it is, you know, money and, and, and wealth just has this appearance of being so steady, you know, so strong, so important in our everyday lives. And it seems to promise things that it actually can't deliver on, um, much like the approval of others that Eric talked about. So again, start tonight, what I want to do is I want to share three big promises in my life that I've had to battle and being tempted in wealth. And what I've come to realize over time is that these are actually lies. They're false promises. Um, and chances are you have come across these yourself where you will come across these. So this is going to be important for you to know as well. So the first false promise of wealth that I've experienced in my life is the promise of security. The promise of security. Um, about five months after I graduated college, uh, I had about $30 left in my bank account. But it's okay. I didn't have a job, and I was $50,000 in school debt, and I had a nice engagement ring sitting in my sock drawer and not on the finger of the girl I wanted to marry. Um, see, what had happened is I, I graduated a couple months earlier, and I used most all of the money I did have left, which wasn't that much, to buy Katie an engagement and a wedding ring. And then I left it you know, with my parents, went overseas for two months on a mission trip to Africa, and then came back with the plan of before I asked her to marry me, I was going to ask for a parent's blessing. And before I was going to do that, I was going to get a job, because what guy goes to a parent and says, can I marry your daughter? You don't have a job. Um, <laughs> but finding the job took a little longer than I suspected. And so I was in a tight spot. Um, and I really had to rely on God to come through for me. And he did, you know, eventually. You know, shortly thereafter, I found a job. Um, talked to her parents, got their blessing, proposed to her, and six months later, we were married, you know. So, um, now coming into marriage, Katie had about $5,000 of debt. Um, so combined, $55,000 in debt. Now, I know what you're thinking. She got the short end of that stick. <laughs> um, she got the raw due, and she did. You'd be right. But she married me anyway, and so it is our debt now. Um <laughs> Or was. Uh, now, just after we had gotten married, um, or just before we got married, I started going through, um, with my work, they offered this thing called Financial Peace University, which many of you guys, uh, some of you guys are going through right now that we offer in Challenge, or some of you guys have gone through in the past. Uh, but basically, it, it's this, if you've never heard of it, it's this course on really how to um, get out of, teach you how to get out of debt, how to live on a budget, how to handle your finances in a way that's really um, just, just very helpful on how to uh, give and how to save and how to invest and all that kind of stuff. So I would go uh, home each night and I kind of fill in Katie on the things I was learning and, and we would just kind of get on the same page. And we really committed, you know, when we got married that we were going to live well below our means so that we could get out of debt as quickly as possible. Um, so we did kind of some of the steps he talks about in that program. You know, first we saved $1,000 really fast. That was kind of our, our, our small emergency fund. And then we just aggressively attacked debt very quickly. Um, now, if we had gone the normal route that, 
you know, the standard minimum payments of paying off debt, we would have paid off, it would have taken us a decade to pay off all of our debt. That was the, the projected, you know, end date, which means I would have been finished paying off debt about a year ago because I've been out of school for about 11 years. But uh, by the grace of God and a lot of hard work, uh, just before we celebrated our two-year anniversary in 2011, we paid off our last bit of debt and haven't had it since. Um, then our next baby step was to uh, have a fully funded emergency fund, which meant, you know, having about six months of expenses saved. And so for us at the time, you know, what that looked like is our goal was to reach about $15,000. And over time, we eventually reached that goal. Now, at this point in life, I was not rich, nor am I now, but I felt pretty rich. You know, I felt like I have no debt. I got $15,000 in the bank. Like, life is going pretty good. Um, and I'll be honest, uh, even though God, and I knew God was the one all along the way that provided the ability to make this income and to make these things work, um, I was struggling over time to not let my trust shift from, or from trusting in him to shifting over to, you know, the money I had in my bank account. And Proverbs 18.11, which is up here on the screen, was beginning to describe some of how I was feeling. It says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Now, if you were around me, would you have known that about me at the time? Probably not. You know, I wasn't the, I wasn't like an Ebenezer Scrooge type or living, you know, lavishly living and doing all like the amazing things of life. No, I mean, Katie and I were, you know, normal people. I mean, we tried to live on a budget, try to handle our money in a way we felt like was honor God. We were generous with what we had. I mean, we were living fairly normal. Um, but whenever I think about a potential problem, I don't know if you can relate this, whenever I think about a potential problem, about oh, what if this happened in life, or what if this happened in life, my mind would immediately go back to, ah, but the emergency fund. I've got the emergency fund, you know. I'm sure glad I've got that between me and life. And that's a good thing, you know. Emergency fund's a good thing. The problem is I really need to look to my real security to the person who provided the emergency fund in the first place, which is God. Um, not the emergency fund itself. So when situations would pop up, I needed to turn to him and not to my money. And now he might choose to use that emergency fund to solve a problem, or but you know, I really needed to look to him to provide for me, not that. And, and that just wasn't the case all the time, unfortunately. Then it happened. <clears throat> the November after we finished our emergency fund, Katie and I went to Texas uh, to attend this conference in Fort Worth um, and the topic for that conference was two things. It was talking about how do you deal with trouble and how do you deal with handling money. And ironically, we got to experience both on that trip, um, not just in the conference. About a day into the conference, Katie's heart rate out of nowhere just suddenly spiked. Um, and spiked to the point that her at-rest heart rate was what most people's heart rate is at when they're sprinting. And if you've ever sprinted very much, you realize you can't keep your breath for very long because you're sprinting. And that was what her heart rate is at and she was just sitting still. <laughs> and then all of a sudden her like, legs and her ankles just started swelling like a lot. And this all within like a few hours. So we had no idea what was going on. So I rushed her to the closest hospital around and they just started running tests on her. And she was in the hospital for about two days as they ran these different tests trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And I, and I have to admit, those were some scary two days. And over the course of those two days, there were two thoughts that were constantly running in my mind. The less significant thought was, how am I going to pay for this? <laughs> um, you know, we were, we were out of state at a uh, hospital that 
you know, was not within our network of insurance. And so I didn't know it. I mean, we were racking up my $15,000 emergency fund was a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of bills we were racking up. So I was like, I have no idea how it's going to, it's going to work out. Um, and then the second thought <clears throat> and the much more significant one was, am I going to lose her? You know, um, I had no idea. You know, save the suspense. She's here. So <laughs> calm down. Um, but at the time, I wasn't sure. Um, and, you know, I remember like it was yesterday as I was driving to and from the hospital to get her food because hospital food sucks. You don't want any hospital food. And so I'd get her, you know, local, you know, fast food, which is close to good for you when you're in the hospital. Um, the thought that I, I felt like it was just yesterday, God just began to speak to me. And it wasn't an audible, but it was just kind of this impression that he said, you know, if she does make it, it's not going to be because of that emergency fund. It's going to be because I chose to save her. And God just really took that opportunity to really remind me that, you know, there are just too many variables in life that you can really allow for money to be your real security. I mean, even if I had millions of dollars and could just write a check, it doesn't mean I might not have lost her, you know? And then this verse came back into my mind, Proverbs 18, 11, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine, keyword imagine, it an unscalable wall. See, they think that the troubles of life can't get to them if they have enough, you know? But the reality is that just isn't true. Um, money can solve a lot, but it can't solve everything. Therefore, it's not sufficient enough to be our sole source of security. Only God can be that. So then we have to really take to heart the wise words here of Psalm 62, where it says, Though your riches increase, and may they increase, <laughs> Though your riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Instead, keep your heart and your trust for security focused on God rather than on your riches. And then the second promise about wealth that can be tempting to buy into for you, and I know it's been for me, is the promise of satisfaction. The promise of satisfaction. Um, I asked a couple of guys earlier, they had never heard of this movie so I don't know if you guys have. How many of you guys have heard of or seen the movie Father of the Bride with Steve Martin? Anybody? Okay. More, more, more of the girls most, mostly, but, you know, hey, some of the guys do. I like that. Um, that may seem like a really random, obscure movie to a lot of you guys. It was from the early 90s. But in my house growing up, that was kind of a classic movie. You know, we, my sister loved that movie, so therefore we all loved that movie because she watched a lot. Um, and I'll spare you all the plot details, but, but essentially – uh, that movie actually, why it may seem like just some insignificant movie, played actually a big role over the course of my life in me struggling with this, putting my uh, trust for satisfaction into wealth. Because, see, the family in the movie, the Banks, uh, on screen, they had what you would consider just the quintessential charmed life. You know, They, they had a great marriage. Uh, they had good kids. They lived in this amazingly picturesque home, which actually is a real house off of uh, El Molino Street in Pasadena. If you ever go by, it's, it's a really cool-looking house. Like, anytime I get a chance to drive through that street, I'm like, that is a cool house. Um, and both the husband and wife, they own their own companies, you know, in this movie. And, and they weren't portrayed as, like, filthy rich, but they were 
rich enough that they were definitely perfectly comfortable, you know, if you can imagine, you know, that kind of, that kind of lifestyle. And since I love, you know, cool air-conditioned homes, I always imagined that this massive home was just, on the hot months of the year, you just walk in, it was just, ah, perfectly air-conditioned, you know? I mean, it was a massive place. Who cares how much it costs to air-condition that? You know, that, that's when you've made it in life. When, who cares what the electricity bill is? Keep the air-conditioning on. You know, that's what we're going to do. And uh, so I just imagined this house, like, ah, nice and cool inside. And there was always, like, fun background music that was playing throughout the movie and the different scenes, which, you know, life's always better when you have your own theme music. But, um, and even though I knew this was just a movie, uh, you know, that, the image of their family and the scenes in this movie uh, kind of really painted in my mind, like, that, that's the good life, you know? Like, that is the satisfied life. And the, what made it all come together, at least in my mind, was money. Um, however, the further I've gone through life, I've begun to realize that, man, money can buy you a lot of fun. It, it sure can. Um, but it can't buy you satisfaction, you know? As rich as the Rolling Stones have gotten, they still keep singing that song, you know, I can't get no satisfaction, you know. That's why I'm not in the band up here, by the way. Um, but, you know, so over the course of our marriage, Katie and I, uh, we've had to actually make some different uh, decisions ourselves regarding finances that really kind of tested what, what really brings us satisfaction, you know. Do we really think God brings us satisfaction or do we think money brings us satisfaction? One of the first ones for us was earlier in our marriage, we had to choose, uh, we felt like God was really kind of leading us to move out of the very inexpensive state of Oklahoma and into the very expensive state of California. You know, in, in Oklahoma, you could buy a massive house that was brand new with a massive yard for the price you could buy an old used condo here in Los Angeles, you know. Um, and then later on in our marriage, we felt like God was leading me to leave the business world and to really step into college ministry here at USC, which you can imagine is not near as lucrative as being in the business world. Um, and then later on in our marriage, we felt like God was leading Katie to really cut back on her hours as a nurse uh, so that she could really spend more time investing in the girls here at USC. And then a few years later, to really resign from her job altogether as a nurse so that she could stay home full time with our two kids and really raised them full-time, which we really kind of consider our two youngest disciples in training, you know, Katie and, or Corey and William, um, as well as being able to still invest in girls here at USC. Now, I don't think God leads everybody to make that decision, uh, but it did seem like he did that for us. And the funny thing is, each step along the way um, at this point in our life has really taken us further away from the reality of the bank's life, you know, and making that our reality. Um, and in fact, the, as I've thought about it because I like to crunch numbers and stuff. I thought, man, if, we had st if I had stayed in business full time and continued going up the way I was and Katie had stayed, like, at this point in life, we probably could have bought a house on that street in the neighborhood of where that movie was filmed. Like, I mean, it would have been tight, but we probably could have done it. Um, and yet, I can say with all honesty, I'm, I, I have a very, I'm very satisfied with my life, you know. Uh, it's not always been easy. It's not always been the charmed life, but I love my life. Now, would I use an extra 10000 every now and then if someone wanted to give it to me? Sure. You know, I mean, what? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Um, but, but honestly, I, I, I really like, I love my life. Um, and that's and because by the grace of God, as we've made choices, and not perfectly, but as we've made choices to trust 
God to be the source of our satisfaction rather than money to be the source of our satisfaction. He's come through over and over and over again. Now, we don't have a perfect life, and it could be better, but we have a, we're content with our life, which is something a lot of people can't say about their life. Now, maybe that story isn't that convincing for some of you. You know, maybe you're still thinking, no, well, I'll take my chances on getting my satisfaction from wealth, you know. Um, but I'd encourage you, have you ever asked yourself, how much would be enough money? You know, how much would be enough to make you satisfied? How much would be enough to make you happy? How much would be enough to make you comfortable? Uh, I read an article recently where this was actually asked years ago <clears throat> of uh, John D. Rockefeller. Do you guys read your history books? You guys know who John D. Rockefeller is? Okay, good, good. Um, for those of you that don't, you know, John D. Rockefeller, he, w he was an Ohio native who started the famous company Standard Oil. Um, and Rockefeller was at one point the world's richest man uh, and actually America's first billionaire. And, and he was a billionaire back in the early 1900s. So by today's standards, he's still considered the richest man in modern history <laughs> ever. Um, and then a reporter asked him one day, hey, Rockefeller, how much is enough? And what do you think his answer was? You guys have any guess? He's a billionaire. Someone asked him, how much is enough? What do you think his answer might have been? What's that? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what he said, you know. How much is enough, Rockefeller? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, you know. And then when I get to that much, just a little bit more. Which makes sense, right? I mean, if money is your source of satisfaction, then wouldn't your satisfaction level go up in direct proportion to if your money's going up? So, of course... How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Then the article went on to briefly describe some background on the relationship with money and happiness. And this is what it said. I'll, I'll read you just the last part of the article. It says, studies have shown economic growth is almost all, in almost all developed countries has brought a very small rise in the subjective well-being. Richard Easterlin, an economics professor at the University of Southern California, um, has researched and found no significant relationship between happiness and time over a period in, uh, in which the gross domestic product per capita grew by one-third from 1972 to 1991. So it was about a 20-year study. If you follow a single person over time, as they move from lower to higher income, you find no increase in their happiness. And then went on to say the most remarkable research is one done between the world's richest and the world's poorest people. Forbes' 400 richest list was given a survey, and their satisfaction was rated at exactly the same level as the people of the Maasai of Kenya and the Intuit people of northern Greenland who have no electricity or running water. Then the article concluded by saying this, said money is a necessity to live, to live by, apparently, but it can't buy happiness. As the old saying goes, money can buy your house, but it can't buy your home. So that's the second promise, <coughs> satisfaction. And then the third promise about wealth that can be tempting to buy into, at least it's been for me, is the promise of significance. The promise of significance. Over the years, I like to think I've had a fair amount of good ideas. I'm always telling Katie all these different good, you know, Katie, if I had money, this is what I would do. And honestly, they're pretty good. <laughs> um, the problem is, uh, most of those ideas require a lot more money than I currently have or probably currently ever will have. But should I ever have it, I've got some ideas ready. Um, so the question is, do I need a lot of money 
in order to lead a significant life? Can I lead a significant life if I am middle class or maybe even poor? And the answer, I think, is, well, that depends. That depends. You see, throughout history, there have been a lot of really wealthy people that have had a very significant impact on the world for the better. My old boss in Oklahoma, this company I used to work for, uh, you know, he runs a multi-million dollar company um, with hundreds of employees. And aside from all the other significant things he does with his life, one of the things he does is every year he gives away 50% of the company's profits to ministries and charities that he thinks are doing a good job. You know, that's pretty significant, wouldn't you think? You know, millions of dollars every year. But you see, there have also been some very significant people who are poor as well. Any of you guys ever heard of Jesus? <laughs> if you haven't, you may be in the wrong way. No. Um, or Mother Teresa. You ever heard of her? You know, I guarantee you, neither of them would ever get on Forbes 500 richest people list. They probably won't get interviewed on 60 Minutes about how awesome they are with their money. But yet they lived, they lived incredibly significant lives. So what's the connection? What is the commonality between these very significant rich people and these very significant poor people? And I think it's this. Significant people leverage what they did have, their time and their talents and their resources, for the benefit of others. They leverage what they did have, their time and their talents and their resources, for the benefit of others. How many of you guys have been to a funeral or a memorial service of some kind before? Have you guys ever been to one? Wow, quite a few actually. Um, I hadn't been to my first one until I graduated college. I was, I lived a sheltered life. Um, or I just had very long living family and friends. That's probably it. Uh, but you know, one of the things that whenever you go to a memorial service or a funeral, eventually they get to talking about the person that died. And they always end up getting around to talking about their significance and like how significant their life was. And it's never tied to how much they have. It's always tied to how much they leverage what they did have to be a blessing to others around them. Whether it's a rich person, whether it's a poor person or someone in between, the barometer is the same for all of them. How much did they leverage what they had to be a blessing to those around them? You know? So can wealth promise significance? Nope. But can you have a significant life with wealth? Yeah, you sure can. You can also have a significant life if you don't have wealth, depending on whether you choose to leverage it for the benefit of others or not. So then how do we deal with this all too easy to slip into deception of wealth? You know, I mean, uh, how, how do we keep it from becoming our master? How do we keep it from being what we turn to for security or significance or satisfaction? Is the answer maybe that we just all need to be poor? You know, if we don't have any money, we don't have to worry about it. We will just, we can't trust what we don't have, right? No, I don't think that's the answer. And you're thinking, thank God, my parents would not go for that. Um, no, because he actually, and the reason I don't go for that is because, you know, poor people can actually trust and serve money more than rich people a lot of the time. Did you know that? Um, and the reason is we actually don't have to have something for it to be our master. I mean, you know this, you know, this may be some of you guys' stories for different things. I mean, 
for some, it's cool, you know. They've never, someone, there's a lot, some people in this room, and maybe, maybe not in this room, all you guys are cool. But, you know, there's some people out there, they've never been cool. But you know what? They're pretty convinced if they were, life would just come together for them. So, man, that's their master. For others, it's fame. You know, they've never been famous, but they're pretty sure if they became famous, life would come together for them. For others, it's a romantic relationship. They've never had a romantic relationship, at least not one that's lasted, you know. But they're pretty sure if they did, life would come together. And so, man, that's what I'm going after. It's all about your orientation towards money that really determines whether it's your master or not. You can be poor or you can be rich and you can be deceived by money. You can also be poor or you can be rich and you cannot be deceived by money. So if being poor is not the answer, then what is? Well, Jesus gives us the answer here in Matthew 6.33. <clears throat> but before we, we read that, um, I should give you a little bit of context. Just before this verse in Matthew 6.33 and verses 25 through 31, which I, I'd encourage you to go back you know, home and read that on your own. Jesus, is what he's doing is he's describing the fate of those whose master is money. He's describing the fate of those whose master is money. And basically, he sums up their fate like this. Constant worry and anxiety. You know, those whose master is money are going to be constantly worrying and constantly anxious. Ironically, they were looking for money to give them security and satisfaction. Instead, they got ulcers, you know, because they were worrying so much. Antoine, uh, and I'll probably butcher his name, Riveroli, said, there are men who gain from their wealth only the fear of losing it. There are men who gain from their wealth only the fear of losing it. And that's true. If wealth is their master. Because, man, every dollar you have, it's another one you can lose. So Jesus tells the people after this, he says, hey, you know, so don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or, or your body and what you'll wear. Or perhaps in our context today, you might say, hey, don't worry about your life, you know. Don't worry about that internship and whether you'll get the internship. And don't worry about if you'll make the right connections. Don't worry if you'll have that beach-ready body by summertime. You know, chances are, if you're not started yet, probably too late. Um, but, uh, but then he goes on to verse 32, and he gives them the reason. He says, you know, for the pagans, which is really just anyone who doesn't follow God as their master, he says, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Then he gets to verse 33, which is where Jesus gives us the answer. He says, this, this is the answer to how can you stay on track living under God's rule and reign in his kingdom and experiencing the real joys and benefits of that versus living a very anxiety-filled life where money is your master. So the answer is this, he says in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. See, the key, Jesus says, is not falling victim into the, to not falling victim in this kind of anxiety-filled life where we're serving money, whether you have a lot of it, whether you have a little bit of it, it's easy to do either way, is to seek first God's kingdom and to seek first God's righteousness. And as you do that, your heavenly Father, who knows exactly what you need, you know, he cares more for you and knows you better than you know you, and he actually has the ability to pull off whatever he wants to do, is planning on meeting your needs as you seek first his kingdom, Let's seek for his righteousness. 
Now, in these preceding verses, if you read this, I know sometimes it can look like flower language, like, oh, Jesus, you're not in touch with reality. You know, he's not saying in the preceding verses, like, so don't worry about, you know, don't work hard. Don't have a budget. Don't think about things as insignificant as money and, you know, don't plan ahead. No, I mean, he's not saying any of that. But what he's saying is if money is going to have its proper place in your life as a tool rather than as your master, then the way you're going to be able to do that is you have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So what does that even look like? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, it's okay. Great. That's the answer. No idea what that means. <laughs> you know, I, I remember for a long time I'd read that verse and be like, sounds like a great idea. Wish I knew what it meant. <laughs> you know, um, and so in the, in the last few minutes here, I just want to briefly give you some thoughts on what that would look like practically in your life, and then we'll wrap up. I mean, we, I, I, this could be a whole message in and of itself, but we don't have the time for that. You guys are probably hungry, and we're going to get out of here in a few minutes. But um, So let me just briefly talk about this. Um, there, there are basically two parts to this, what he's saying here. The first is seeking first his kingdom, and then the second is seeking first his righteousness. So the first, seeking first God's kingdom. Which, as we discussed earlier, you know, God's kingdom is where he is ruling and reigning. So how do you seek first God's kingdom? The answer is you identify what God is doing in the world, and then you join him in that. You identify what God is doing in the world, and then you join him in that. So what's God up to in the world? Well, in general, this. It's a little bit longer answer, so... I'll read through a couple times. Trust me, it's not as complicated as it looks. But in general, what God is doing is he's seeking as many people as possible that would like to step out of the kingdom of darkness that's under the rule and reign of the enemy and step into God's kingdom under God's rule and reign where they can enjoy a growing personal relationship with him and his followers. So think about that for a sec. Let that kind of sit in there for a sec. I'm going to say it again. It's, it's a... Not, it's not as complicated as it looks, like I said. What God is doing in general in the world is he is seeking as many people as possible that would like to step out of the kingdom of darkness that they are currently in, which is under the rule and reign of the enemy, and step in to God's kingdom under his rule and reign so that they can really experience a growing and personal relationship with him and with his followers. And so the way we join him in that is we stop asking the question, how can I leverage my life for my kingdom? And we start asking the question, how can I leverage my life for his kingdom? You know, not, it's not our, our kingdom, and you, each of you have a kingdom, you know, where you rule and reign, where you make decisions and things happen. You know, you start thinking about how can you leverage your kingdom and your life to benefit his rather than to benefit your own. And so what that looks like practically, really, is investing our lives in people. Investing our lives in people by meeting needs. Investing our lives in people by helping them step into God's kingdom. And then investing our lives in people by helping them learn how to follow him. So that's seeking first God's kingdom. Then the second part, which is very much tied to it, is seeking first his righteousness. Seeking first his righteousness. And essentially what this means is we are concerned with how we ourselves are obeying and becoming like God. We're concerned with how we ourselves are obeying and becoming like God. You know, how are we doing at letting God rule and reign in our life? How are we doing at letting God rule and reign in our life? 
And the way you begin to answer and to work on that is you have to get to know God in his word, and you have to begin to obey him in the different areas of your life. And as you do that, over time, your character is going to become more and more like his. So when you're making your primary concern to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, you're essentially investing your life in three things. God, people, and the person you're becoming. You're investing your life in God, and people, and the person you're becoming. Which, interestingly enough, are actually the only three things that will last forever. Did you know that? Did you know everything else has an expiration date except for God and people? You know, it's the only thing worth investing in. And if you'll invest your life in these things, God and people and the person you're becoming, then you'll do exactly what Jesus commands us to do when he began to introduce this topic on the deception of wealth in Matthew. Where he says, Story up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, instead of storing up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust do destroy, and where thieves do break in and steal. See, when what you really trust in, guys, when what you really trust in and what you really treasure is beyond any risk or any threat of being taken or damaged, anxiety and worry becomes a thing of the past, right? I mean, if no one can get to what you trust and no one can get to what you treasure, then anxiety is just a hangover thought from a previous way of living. I mean, there's no need for it, right? And we can actually then begin to be freed from the deception of wealth and from making our master. And we can instead enjoy life to the fullest under God's rule and reign and living in his kingdom if we'll do what he says in Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given you as well. So I'd encourage you guys, let's do that together, you know. If we can get after that, we got five and a half weeks left to finals, and then life's over after that. But, you know, for the next five and a half weeks, you know, we can get after it. Well, let me pray for us, and then I'll invite the band back up. Father, <clears throat> thank you so much that you are so much more reliable than money. Uh, you, uh, you provide money. You are the source of our ability to earn money, God, but you are much more reliable than money. And uh, you really satisfy. You really bring, allow our lives to have significance. And you really um, allow our lives to have real security. And God, that really only happens as we choose to make you our number one priority, to seek first your kingdom, and to seek first your righteousness. And God, as we do that, all the other things that people are making a beeline for and directly living will just be a part of being your children. You'll provide for us in your timing as you see best. And we can actually live a content life, not a deliriously happy life, but a content life, and really make an impact with it. And so, God, I pray that um, as easy it is to be fall into that temptation would we hurdle over over the course of time in our lives and that'll take a long time just to be able to 
not give in to the deception of wealth so that we can really live and enjoy the full measure of being inside of your kingdom under your rule and reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.